But tonight I'm excited to look at God's word with you. We just started a series last Friday on the book of Daniel. And it's called God Still Reigns. Because in every story that we read in the book of Daniel and every dream that's interpreted and every vision that's revealed, there is one central message. God still reigns. And Daniel is writing this to the Jewish people who are now living under a foreign country who's oppressing them, who wonder, will we ever have our sovereignty as a nation again? What's going to happen to our lives and our children? And his message for them is God still reigns. And Daniel is in a position of authority in the government in ancient Babylon and uh, with modern-day Iraq. And in there, he has a message for the rulers of those countries, the people who think they're so powerful that they run the world. His message for them is the same. God still reigns. And so in a world that was filled with upheaval and uncertainty and chaos, this was the message that God had through the prophet Daniel thousands of years ago. And that's the message that we see God give us today. And so today we're going to be looking, we're going to continue the series looking at Daniel chapter 2. And so if you want to turn there with me, we're going to go through the second chapter of Daniel. And so first we're going to get nerdy. We're going to kind of go verse by verse through the beginning portion to kind of see, okay, what is the scene? What's happening? Then we're going to get practical. Uh, This chapter is all about what do we do when trouble happens? We're going to get practical. And then lastly, we're going to go deep, uh, deep and look at our hearts. And so joining together in Daniel chapter 2, it begins and it says, In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams. His spirit was troubled and sleep escaped him. So the king issued an order to summon the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans in order to explain to the king his dreams. And when they came and they stood before the king, he said to them, I have dreamed a dream and I'm anxious to understand what it means. And the Chaldeans spoke to him, the king in Aramaic, and they said, may the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we'll declare to you the interpretation. And the king answered the Chaldeans, saying, I firmly decreed, if you don't make this dream and its meaning known to me, you'll be torn limb from limb and your houses will be reduced to rubble. But if you tell me this dream and its meaning, you will receive gifts, rewards, and great honor. So tell me the dream and its meaning. So the king, Nebuchadnezzar, he really wants to know. I mean, this is a pretty harsh decree, right? He's saying, if you don't tell me this dream, I'm going to kill you and destroy your house. It's intense, but it's actually something that kings would do back then. Historians tell us, secular historians tell us that 100 years later, there was a king named Darius who basically did this exact same thing, and he ended up killing them because they couldn't tell him what he wanted. So this is a historical document as we look at the book of Daniel. It's not just made-up stories. This is real history that was written down and God preserved for us today so we can learn from and it's in, it says this happens in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar. And so basically last week we were introduced to Daniel and his three amigos, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they had just completed when this story happens, when Nebuchadnezzar has this dreams, Daniel has basically just completed law school. He has now just started an entry-level position with the government when this happens. 
And Nebuchadnezzar, it says, is really disturbed about this dream. It says he has this recurring dream, this nightmare that's giving him insomnia because he's just filled with anxiety. He doesn't know what it means. And he calls together the astrologers and magicians, the wise men, the smartest people, the elite people in the kingdom. And what he tells them is, I need to know this. He says, I need to know not only the interpretation, but I need to know the dream too, because I need to know that you really have a supernatural connection and a supernatural ability, because I don't want you just to give me a made-up answer of what this dream means, right? Today, we have charlatans, right? We've got people with horoscopes and different things. And what he's saying is, I just don't want a made-up answer that you can fit on a fortune cookie, right? I don't want just a nice horoscope that that sounds nice that's going to make me feel good. I don't want a fake answer. And if all you're doing is scamming me and you're putting my life and my kingdom at risk by just feeding me fortune cookie answers, if you're putting my life and my kingdom at risk, I'm going to destroy you and your home. But if you actually have a supernatural ability to understand these things, I'm going to reward you because that's invaluable to me. But the astrologers and the magicians, they don't have an answer for him. And they stall for time and the king recognizes this. And so he tells them, he says, you have conspired to say something false and fraudulent. And until such a time as things change, that hopefully I'm going to change these terms. And he says, but because you can't tell me the dream in its meeting, he says, he, t- he orders them to execute all the wise men of Babylon. And so he sends them out now to kill all of the magicians and astrologers. And so the chief, the captain of the guard comes to Daniel's house, knocks on his door and says, you've got a death sentence. The king is ready to kill you. And like we just said, Daniel just graduated from law school, right? He's at the bottom of the totem pole. He wasn't even at this meeting. So he has to to ask him what happened. Like, why is this so urgent? And as we look at what happens here, what amazes me is how Daniel responds to trouble, right? This is a death sentence. Someone knocks on his door, but rather than being like served papers to go to the court, it's your served papers, you're going to go to be executed. No warning, right? And in the midst of this, Daniel could just react with panic. He could just resign himself to this fatalistic, I'm going to die, this is what happened, but he doesn't. And so as we experience trouble in life, I think there are three really great lessons we can look at Daniel and learn from him. Because in chapter 2 of Daniel, Daniel makes three different requests. And I think these three requests are great lessons for us. And so the first thing that Daniel does is when Daniel finds out what's happening, he goes to the king and he asks for time and he tells the king that he can interpret the dream. And in life, when I think about when trouble happens and usually when I respond out of, at, respond out of panic and just react, lots of times I feel rushed, I feel under pressure, I fe- and in those circumstances, I just react based on the external pressure or based on an impulse. But Daniel doesn't do that. He doesn't feel the pressure of that moment. Instead, he asks the king for more time. And it says, when he does this, it says that he spoke to the chief of the guards and he spoke to the king and it says he spoke with tact and discretion and in the aramaic what these words mean is that this is that when the situation happened he reacted in a way that was intentional and sensitive to what was going on that rather than reacting just out of the pressure it means that he resolved beforehand that when trouble was going to come he had determined beforehand how he was going to respond to it 
that it just wasn't going to be a reaction to moment that he knew in life trouble is going to come, but rather than just reacting the moment before the trouble even would come to him, he was going to decide beforehand how he would respond to it, and he was going to make that resolution. And so when something happened that was crazy, something unforeseen, when there was chaos, when there was something going on that was causing trouble, he wasn't going to react, but he was going to respond intentionally. And the second aspect in the Aramaic of these words has to do with being sensitive to the situation, that he was going to respond in a way that just wasn't out of impulse, but he was going to be sensitive to the people who were involved. He was going to be cautious in his words. He and so this is what he does. He asks for more time, and he responds and speaks in a way that's with tact and discretion. And I think the answer, one of the lessons for us in terms of learning from Daniel is that when in trouble, ask for time. That one of the things that Daniel says in this chapter is, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for he changes times and seasons. That time is in God's hands. And that when difficult things happen to us, not to feel the pressure of the time, not to feel the pressure of deadlines, not to succumb to the pressures going around us or the impulses inside of us, but to know that God is in charge of seasons and times and to have peace in that. And then practically speaking, when he asks for more time, that's just great advice. Uh, there was an article I read recently from the Harvard Business Review, and it talks about this, and it talks about deadlines are one of the most stressful things in the workforce, and yet lots of times what they found is people don't want to ask for extensions. That when we think, when we ask for extensions or when we bring something up like that, we're afraid we're going to be seen as incompetent and, or unprofessional. And so to better understand this, they ran 10 different experiments and they surveyed nearly 10,000 employees and managers in the U.S. And they found that across occupations in every, in, in every industry, asking for more time to work on, a, to work on an assignment on average, was positively perceived by managers. It reduced stress levels, improved their performance, and it didn't impact how their managers saw them. And so it was saying that in the workforce, people rarely ask for extensions, even when people tell them a deadline is flexible. Yet when they ask for an extension, it just decreases their stress, they have better results, and, they don't have, and the boss usually has negative perceptions about it. But I think lots of times we can feel the pressure of the moment and respond just out of this sense of pressure when we have to realize that time is in God's hands. He controls times and seasons. And that when we understand that, we can be liberated from acting out of pressure and acting out of impulse into being like Daniel and to responding intentionally and sensitively to what's going on. And that's the first quest that he makes. He asks for more time. And then he makes his second request and says, it says, after he got the extension from King, from King Nebuchadnezzar, it says, then he went back to his house. The, he, he informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter so that they would request mercy from God concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his friends wouldn't perish alongside of the rest of the wise men in Babylon. And so Daniel, after he gets this extension, he goes home. He has to let his roommates know, right, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that this had happened because they had no clue either. But it says that then they went to request mercy from God. They went to ask God's help. And then it tells us in verse 19, 
during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel, and Daniel blessed the God of heaven. The interesting thing is it says that, um, it says that he, in the night, he heard it in a vision, right? It wasn't a dream, right? If it was a dream, he would have been sleeping and he heard from God. But it was a vision, which means he was wide awake. He was praying into the night. The second thing about this is that Daniel, for number one, he asked for time. Number two, he asked for help. That he believed that because God is in control of time, that because God still reigns, he could go to God and ask for help. And into the night, he was praying, and God gave him his answer. And in Luke 12, Yeshua teaches his disciples to pray, and he tells them a parable. And in Luke 11, it says this, Yeshua said to them, which of you has a friend and would go to him in the middle of the night and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves because another friend of me has come to me on his journey and I have nothing to feed him. And he might answer you, don't bother me. The door is already locked. My kids and I are already in bed. I can't get up to give you anything. But I tell you, even if your friend won't get up and give you anything out of friendship, yet because of your perseverance, he'll get up and give you whatever you, you need. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father, if his son asks for a fish, would give him a snake instead? And if he asks for an egg, would he give him a scorpion? If then you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, to those who ask him? And Yeshua is challenging his disciples, ask God for help, that we serve a God who rules and reigns, and that like a loving father, he is more than willing to help us. And when it comes to prayer, one of the people who's inspired me so much is George Mueller. And George Mueller, he was a pastor, an evangelist, and an orphanage director in the 1800s in England. He actually began his career in ministry by sharing the good news with Jewish people, being part of a, a ministry to Jewish people in London. And yet years later, when he was a pastor, George Mueller would be on the streets in London, and he would see so many children without a father, without a mother, children who were orphaned on the streets, and he felt God calling him to open up an orphanage to take in these children. And he prayed, and God provided a building, and he provided furniture and food and money and clothing, and the needs of the orphanage were met day by day. And George Miller had an interesting thing. He would never ask anybody for money. He never told anybody that this is how God wanted them to do ministry, but he felt this personal conviction that he was never going to raise support, that he was never going to ask people for money, but when he was in need, he was going to just pray. And he says that, you know, money would come in, whether it was somebody who had just a little bit amount of money, whether it was people who could provide lots of money, he would pray and God would answer his prayers. And more than 10,000 children lived in his orphanage over the years, and every single one of them never went without food while under his care. He provided education for them, so much so that he was accused of raising the poor out of their natural station in life, Right? That, that the poor should be poor because they deserved it, and yet they accused him that he was breaking the way it should be because he was educating these 10,000 children. And so over those years that he was praying and asking God to provide, 
He established over 117 different schools and educated 120,000 children, and many of them were, were orphans. And yet in his life, he had this conviction to ask God for help. That when trouble was going to face him, he wasn't going to respond by thinking, okay, I'm going to try to just figure it on my own or that I'll get other people to help me. But he knew that beyond his own ability to figure out difficult situations, beyond the ability of others to help him, that God is a good father and that we can ask him for help. And, and as I look at his life, there's one story I just want to share with you that impacted me. And it was actually recorded by somebody else in their journal. And so this was another believer, and they wrote in their journal, I went to America some years ago with a captain of a steamship who was a very devoted believer. And when off the coast of Newfoundland, he said to me, the last time I crossed here five weeks ago, something happened which revolutionized my whole life as a follower of the Messiah. He said, I had George Mueller of Bristol on board. And I had, uh, I'd been on the bridge for 24 hours and I'd never left it. And George Mueller came up to me and he said, Captain, I have to be in Quebec by Saturday afternoon. And the captain said, that's impossible. And so George Mueller said, very well, if your ship cannot take me, God will find some other way. He said, I've never broken an engagement. I've never been late to an appointment in 57 years. So let's go down to the chart room and let's pray. And so this captain said, I looked at that man of God and I thought to myself, what lunatic asylum did this man come from? Because I've never heard of anything like this. And so he said, Mr. Mueller, do you know how dense this fog is? We're not going to be able to get through this fog. We're not going to be able to get to Quebec by Saturday afternoon. So he said, do you know how dense the fog is? No, Mueller replied. My eye is not on the density of the fog, but on the living God who controls every circumstance of my life. He knelt down and prayed one of the most simple prayers. And when he finished, I was going to pray. But he put his hand on my shoulder and he told me not to pray. First, you don't believe he will answer. And second, I believe he already has. And so there's no need whatsoever for you to pray about it. So get up, Captain, and open the door, and you will find the fog gone. And I just looked at him, and he said, Captain, I have known my Lord for 57 years, and there has never been a single day that I have failed to get audience with the king. Get up, Captain, and open the door, and you will see the fog gone. So I got up, and indeed the fog was gone, and by Saturday afternoon, George Mueller was in Quebec for his engagement. And George Mueller wrote, wrote this in one of his journals. He said, I affectionately warn against being led away by the device of Satan to think that these things are peculiar just to me, that they can't be enjoyed by all of God's children. Let Satan never deceive you in making think that you could not have the same faith, but that it's only for persons who are situated like I am. I beseech you, don't think of me as an extraordinary believer having privileges above any other of God's dear children. Nor look at me and my way of acting as something that wouldn't do for other believers. Do but stand still in the hour of trial and you will see the help of God if you trust in him. And as I look at, at, at George Mueller, as I look at Daniel, I see people who would ask for God for help who prayed with chutzpah, right? 
this audacious, bold prayer of faith that believes that God can answer and that George Mueller, he said, I have never failed to get audience with the king. And Daniel knew that above Nebuchadnezzar, right, above his crazy requests, there was a higher king. There was a greater king. And he would never fail to get audience with God. And so David prayed and God answered him. And so Daniel goes to the king and he explains the interpretation to him. And he explains that in his dream, he had sought a statue and he tells him what the statue looked like and what happened to it and that a rock had come and destroyed the statue. And he told him every detail about what it means. And at the end of it, Nebuchadnezzar, he's blown away. He knows this was the dream that he had had and that he knows that Daniel has given him the true interpretation. And if you're interested in like the future and what the Bible says about end-time prophecy, as we go through the series on Daniel, we'll get to looking at end-time prophecy later. So we're not going to cover that tonight. We're going to cover that later on in the series. But the main point that Daniel is bringing to the king, the main point he's saying God wants to show you, is that there is a rock coming who's going to destroy this statue, and this rock will grow into a mountain, and it'll be the kingdom of God. And what he's saying is, you rule the world now, but there is another king coming. There is the king Messiah, and he is going to reign. And so his message for the king, beyond the details of the prophecy, is that God still reigns, that the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to establish God's kingdom on earth. And that every prophecy, every vision, every dream is centered on this one thing. God still reigns. And at the end of this, it says that Nebuchadnezzar, he rewards Daniel. And that it says that he gave him these gifts and he made him a ruler over the province. And then it brings us the third and final request of Daniel. And it says, after he had made, him the, made Daniel the chief of the wise men of Babylon, it says, moreover, at Daniel's request... The king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel remained at the court. And so the last request that Daniel has is for his three friends, right, that they would have this position. And so as I look at these lessons from Daniel on how to respond to trouble, the first one was ask for time, ask for help, and then remember others. When Daniel is in this position, he remembers others. The first thing that he says to the king and says to the captain of his guard is, don't kill the wise men, I have the interpretation. And I think he could have just saved himself, right? He could have cut the competition, right? Just finished law school, cut out all the other, all the other lawyers are going to make, you know, partner at the law firm right away, right? He could cut out all of these fake astrologers who worship false gods, but he remembered them and he even saves their life. When he's raised to his promotion to be the chief in Babylon, he remembers his friends who prayed with him, right? On that night when they're saying, God, if you don't give us the dream, we're dead. And when they cried out in desperation together with Daniel, he remembers them. And he, and, he, and he has a request that they would be given positions. So he remembers the other people. He remembers his friends. But then he remembers God. And it's this interesting contrast because when Daniel is brought before the king, the captain, the guard who's supposed to kill him, he takes as much credit for himself as he can get. He says, I discovered this man from Judah who can make the interpretation known, right? He tries to say, hey, I brought him to you. I, I did this. He t tries to take as much credit as he, he can get. But when Daniel goes before the king, he doesn't try to take credit for himself. He remembers God. He says, 
There's no one, no wise man, no astrologer, no magician who can disclose this to you, but there is a God in heaven and he can make you know this dream. He can make, known, make you know this dream with certainty, that he remembers God, that after God answers his prayer, he remembers the God and gives God the credit that God gave him and he gives the praise to God. And as he does this, I'm blown, I'm, I see that he gives the praise to God because he knows that God is a king greater than Nebuchadnezzar and that he is worthy of his praise. And in, and in his thing, I, I see that he remembers God as the greater king. And there's this contrast, right? Because over Nebuchadnezzar, there's a greater king. And Daniel says in this chapter, when he receives the vision, he says, blessed is the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and might are his. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he installs kings. That no matter what trouble faces me in life, no matter what trends there are in society, no matter the ups and downs of the economy, no matter what happens, no matter what I see in times and seasons, God is above it. God still reigns. That above Nebuchadnezzar, there is God still reigns. That God installs and removes kings that over nations and their destinies and over national leaders, more than anything else, God still reigns. And that the difference is that God is good. And as I look at this, right, the central message is that God still reigns, and yet God is a king unlike any other king, right? In this passage of scripture, King Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm king, and if you don't reveal this to me, if you're just scamming me, right, giving me fortune, cook am- fortune cooker answers, fortune cookie answers, right? That I'm going to kill you because you've been scamming me and you deserve to die, right? He is a king who's going to kill them all. And yet with God, we see a king who dies for his people when we deserve it. That in this passage, it looks forward to the coming of Messiah, knowing that we have a king who would die in our place. That when we deserve death, he would die in our place. And so as we go through trouble, we have practical insight from the book of Daniel of how to handle trouble like he did, to ask for time, to ask for help, to remember others. But more than anything else is the comforting truth that God still reigns, that over every trouble and every problem we experience, he is a good king. He isn't going to use us and abuse us like other people might, but he is a God who would die in our place. And as we go forward and end the service and move forward, we're going to sing the Kaddish together. And it's right, it's the mourner's Kaddish. It's this prayer for the dead. And as we sing it together, we can stand remembering loved ones who have died. But these words in the Kaddish, they aren't a prayer for the dead. They're a prayer of thanksgiving and praise to God. And as we sing this worship to God, that we can remember that we had a king who died for us but who is resurrected and a king who died so that we can be resurrected and live for him forever. And that until he returns, until that day, he is a good king and a good father and we can come to him when we experience trouble. And he is a God who is worthy of our worship. And so if you would stand with me as we can worship our king together, that no matter what we face in life, God still reigns.